as my kids have gotten older, I often drive toward the west side of Asheville on I-240 and remind them that we live in a beautiful place. You can see the blue ridges in the background, albeit with more hotels on the landscape than when we first arrived in this region. Note for later in the sermon, change is not always good. <laughs> I grew up in South Florida where the land is flat and there are strip malls at every intersection. I lived in Wisconsin where the land grant divisions created fields where corn grows in a grid. But the mountains, they always have a special claim to those who find themselves in their glory. We sometimes speak about mountaintop experiences, those moments that transcend our embodied existence. They get at the very depths of our souls by expanding the limitations often felt in our minds and our bodies and our souls. You may remember that the last speech the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King gave before he was assassinated was called, I've Been to the Mountaintop. That speech, it was given to sanitation workers in Memphis because King knew of the intersection of poverty and race and the American mythology that created a longed-for reality and a hoped-for future. He proclaimed, well, I didn't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. After speaking to his mortality, he continued, I just want to do God's will, and God's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as people, we will get to the promised land. In the absence of the longed-for future, we need the moments that transcend our reality that bring us closer to the spaces and places where heaven and earth collide, and we need hearts open to them. Mountaintops hold special significance. People climb mountains to clear their heads, to propose on pinnacles, to scatter ashes into the vast horizon. The past three weeks wove us through what is called the Sermon on the Mount, though as it mentioned, it wasn't clear it was much of a mountain. That being said, mountains can be vast like the Rocky Mountains and smaller like our Blue Ridge Mountains, but no matter the size, the experience at the top seeks to elevate us from what we regularly experience to something far greater. And that is the case for both of our stories today. Our Hebrew Bible text, it finds Moses instructed toward the mountaintop to receive the commandments. This comes after God has spoken the law and the commandments to all of the people. In the preceding chapters, the Israelites have been led out of Egypt. Moses has parted the Red Sea. They have found themselves in the wilderness and received manna from heaven raining down and water from the rock of Horeb. They come to Mount Sinai. They're camping in the wilderness before it, at its bottom. And Moses ascends to be in conversation with God. He returns to the elders to share God's word. God tells Moses to consecrate the people and that God will appear in short time. And indeed this occurs, but interestingly enough, it happens at the base of the mountain that is wrapped in clouds from smoke because God has descended upon it in fire. 
God summons Moses to the top of the mountain to engage and warns against others coming near, keeping a distance between God and the people, requiring an intermediary. The Gospel text, it finds Jesus taking Peter and James and John up the mountain. God doesn't use Jesus as the intermediary. Jesus is changed before their eyes, an indication of the power and the nature of God. It's here where Jesus glows in what is known as the Transfiguration, and Moses and Elijah appear with him. Moses and Elijah have important stories in the Hebrew tradition. Though it is believed that the appearance of Moses and Elijah is more deeply connected to their death than their living in this part of the text. Both are prophets whose appearance alongside Jesus intends to send a message to those with him confirming the importance of Jesus. Scholar Eric Barreto writes, their presence marks Jesus as their heir, their collaborator in this holy work. But they don't stick around, even though Peter offers to build them a dwelling. Peter seems to think that when Jesus shows up or when prophets appear, they need a place to dwell. But that is not so. In fact, while our human instinct is to capture and hold on, experiencing God is often a lot of about shattering our expectations. It's about letting go of what we believed, of what imprisons us, of what keeps us from the change that God makes possible. This happens on the mountaintop. It happens at the bottom of the mountain. It happens in the land-grant grids of the Midwest and in the strip malls of South Florida. Well, some among us will ask, did this actually happen? How did it happen? I will disappoint you by saying, perhaps. But if that's your concern, let me encourage your attention be turned someplace else. The story of Moses ascending the mountain to receive the law and commandments, the story of Jesus on fire with Moses and Elijah by his side, they are powerful stories that purport a powerful truth about the mystery and magnificence of God that resides alongside our human experience. And that, it is found all around us. The power of God is in how God changes us. That is part of the power of transfiguration. God changes Jesus, and in that we see the power of God to change us. God appears in light and fire and clouds, and God isn't interested in being captured and held so you can come visit. That isn't how God works. God isn't static. God changes us, and it happens all the time. We find ourselves on mountaintops and at crossroads. We experience the deepest sorrow and the, deep, and the most profound joy. We might put down our phone and opt for silence, and indeed, God shows up in all of those places. Not because God isn't present in other places, but because we aren't prepared for God in so many places. 
In their book, Living the Questions, David Felton and Jeff Proctor Murphy write, there's a Celtic saying that heaven and earth are only three, pe- three feet apart. But in the thin places, the distance becomes even smaller. A thin place is where the veil that separates the sacred from the pedestrian is so transparent that one is able to catch a glimpse of the mystery beyond. A thin place is anywhere our hearts are receptive to the more, anywhere the distance we put between us and the divine begins to evaporate. Our instinct when we find it is to create a dwelling for it, to box it up. Church, church buildings, they've been that. So has doctrine and dogma. It isn't interested in your questioning and seeking. Because God, God is about flexibility and pliability. That bamboo out there in the forest, have you ever looked at it once it's cut from its life? It's brittle and it breaks. It's hard. But bamboo, when it's living, it's flexible and pliable. That's what's required of the living and of our faith because God changes us. God then can change us. So today I ask you, how are you letting God in to change you? How are you preparing your heart to receive the more where heaven and earth collide? Can I tell you how excited I am to see that nearly 45 people committed to our Lenten journey on race as we seek to explore the difficult realities of our race and our nation and continue to do the difficult work of trying to be better for this day. That's change. Conversations about systems and how we show up as a church, we're having one after worship today, change. Your job, your beliefs, your plans, the very you that you are and the you that you are yet to be, change, change, change. In his book, Engaging the Powers, theologian Walter Wink writes, God, in short, seems to be trying against my very stubborn reluctance to make a more whole person out of me. He explains, in this process taking place within my psyche, I realize the biblical struggle against the powers is being enacted in me by God. If then we are not free, it is either because we are unaware of our bondage or because we think we are benefiting in some way from continuing to allow a power other than God to have sovereignty over us. And God's sovereignty over us It isn't in a box or a dwelling place where we hold on to God. It's in the powerful truth of our openness to being changed by God, transfigured for what we are called to do and to be in this world. The power of God's grace and love isn't that we are forgiven, though we are. It's in the truth that we have an open invitation to change and so we must but what happens in the face of change we too often drop to our knees in fear like the disciples do we stop dead in our tracks proclaim a God that is unchanged Eric Barreto reminds us that Jesus touched 
touches them in this story. It's a detail that's not to be missed as we see here an embodiment of Jesus' compassionate, healing, and courage-inducing touch. And he asks them not to fear, showing them a scene now more ordinary than numinous. There, the world has gone back to what it was. No prophets of old, no audible divine voice, no light emanating from Jesus' face. Brett says the world has gone back to what it was, but the disciples cannot return to the same world as they descend from this mount because they have been changed. Faces down in fear, unknowing what they experienced, deep in the mystery, they have been changed. That is the power of change. It happens in the deeply difficult realities of living, in the wilderness after an exodus from slavery, on a mountain in the midst of a movement that is obviously threatening the powers at hand. In your relationship, when you are entrenched in disagreement. In the depths of addiction, when your family and your job are taking the toll. In the places where heaven and earth meet and declare a new possibility. And in that moment, I pray you don't attempt to create a dwelling for the power of holy transformation. For your change, it has only just begun. It is always just beginning. God is still at work. Indeed, that is good news. Because God is at work in you. Amen.